morning. Would you please uh, pray with me? God of grace and truth, we come into this space. And God, we thank you for bringing us to this new day. And as we start this holy week, um, God, and as we have declared, you are the one who we have been waiting for. So God, we thank you for being the one who chose to enter into our world, um, for knowing that uh, we needed you and that we still need you. God, we thank you for being a God who hears our cries, um, Lord, who answers. And you know that for many of us, um, God, we feel like we are still waiting for you. And so we ask that in this time and space, you would help us to know that you hear us, that you see us, and that, God, our prayers matter to you. And so, God, we lift up um, those of us um, here in our family, as well as in our community and in our world, um, Lord, who continue to cry out. And so for those of us who, God, our bodies are failing, or our minds are not as um, we would wish them to be, would you grace us with a healing touch? And for those who need strength, who need comfort, God, as we grieve uh, different losses in our life, whether that is transition, whether that is the passing of someone whom we have loved, a new job, or losing one, um, God, we lift that up to you. Um, We ask that in all of this, that you would make your presence known. Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who came and opened your arms wide and said that when we come to you in worship, we don't need to leave anything at the door. And so we bring all of who we are this morning, our brokenness and our joys, um, God, our hopes and the things that also have been dashed, to lay them at your feet and to declare that, again, you are the one whom we wait on, and the one in whom we place our trust and who we look to. And in a time when, God, all around our world, um, we see a lot of instability as leaderships have been changing and as nations are um, in tumult, God, we, again, come to place our trust in you thanking you that you are a God and a king who is different, who chooses to um, be one of love. And so we ask that you would make us um, soft in our hearts as we come this morning, and that your spirit would meet us in this place, that we would receive and be people of love just as you are a God of love. Lord, we ask that as we come into this space and as your spirit meets us, that our prayer is that we would not leave here as people unchanged. So may this morning be, God, a time when we would encounter you and you would receive our worship, um, God, as a praise to you. And in this week, we especially ask that for um, the services that would happen for Monday, Thursday, for Good Friday, that those would be special times, that you would meet us in those spaces, reminding us that you are a God who's deeply present, um, 
present with us now and present with us always. And that your love endures even in the face of death and in all of the suffering. And that your love also comes out on the other side. So we lift all of these things up to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Okay, good morning. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke 19th chapter, 28 to 44th verse. After he had said this, he went on ahead. Going up to Jerusalem, when he had come near Bethage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a coat that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it, as he had told them. As they were untying the coat, its owners asked him, Why are you untying the coat? They said, The Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their cloaks on the coat, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they've been saying. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, for they are now hidden from your eyes, indeed the days will come upon you, when your enemies set up ramparts around you and surround you, and him you end on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave within you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of the visitation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Choir, thank you so much. Everybody, let's join them one time uh, with this line, Hosanna in the highest. Uh, On three, we'll all say it together. I'm setting you in the midst of this story here. All right, so on three, Hosanna in the highest. One, two, three. Hosanna in the highest. Okay, we didn't sound as loud as the choir. Uh, Let's try it one more time. And this is the only thing you've got to use your breath for for the next few minutes. All right, one, two, three. You're going to get in trouble. That's what this passage is about this morning on Palm Sunday, is all of the tension that's happening in this declaration, Hosanna in the highest. And so let's get started. This is one of my favorite teachings, I think. 
Uh, and so I'm really excited to get to share it with you. Thank you, Dave. Right? Oh, I'm so excited, y'all. All right. <laughs> you know how much I move. There's a really good chance I'm going to trip on some of this. So I'm going to scoot a little bit of it away. Okay. We are at the beginning of what we would call Holy Week here in the church calendar. So all of these palms, all of these hosannas, all speak to the time that we are in, in uh, God's time. Now we've been in the season of Lent for 30-something days or so, starting on Ash Wednesday. And now we begin the final few days, March, to the cross and then the empty tomb. So today is Palm Sunday, which marks uh, the way that we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, which you saw sort of dramatized with the kids in the choir, and then with this donkey that we're going to get to in a minute. How stable is this? It's fine, y'all, it's fine. It's very, very heavy and strong. And then uh, after today, we're going to be moving through Holy Week, and I want to invite you to a couple of services as we uh, move toward the cross. Monday, Thursday at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a service of foot washing and communion, and that's going to be in the chapel. And uh, Pastor Gretchen is going to be leading our reflection during that time, so everybody's welcome to that. And then on Good Friday, which is when we remember... Uh, Christ's death and the passion, that's going to be on Friday at 6 o'clock in the chapel. And our choir is going to lead that service for us. And that's a bit of a service of darkness. And then Easter Sunday is next Sunday. And all of those hallelujahs that we've been holding, some traditions, uh, some churches, they'll even take, the kids will, will write hallelujah, and then they'll bury it somewhere in the ground, and then they'll dig it up on Easter Sunday as this kind of remembering of resurrection. So that's where we are. All righty? Are we ready? Let's see if I can get down from this. That's going to happen more than once today, I can tell. Just because I don't very, I very rarely have a donkey prop to use during a service. So I feel like we should. All right, let's get started. Hey, there he is. Palm Sunday, y'all. This is the first bit of text James read so well for us today. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. We're going to jump in together. It says... After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. There's so much happening in this text. There's so much happening all around the, the setting, the time that we're in. And so uh, I, have, I have a lot to share with you. I want to ask if we can pray together as we get started. And then we're going to jump in with both feet. Okay, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, being with us this morning up to this point. For all of those who have uh, led us in singing and in prayer uh, to this place. Now open our hearts and our minds that we would uh, expand into the story that you were inviting us into. Uh, with full confidence that you will meet us there. And pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. If you look backwards and read just a few verses before, Jesus tells this parable as he moves toward the Mount of Olives and moves toward Jerusalem. And we don't have time to talk about it today, but I just want to say that the parable ends very strange. Uh, I'll read just the last few verses for me, for you. 
This is a bit like the parable of the talents where servants are given a little bit of money and a little bit more and a little bit more money and each of them invested in a certain way for the master and the master comes home and says, I need my money back with interest. And two of the servants are like, here's your money back with some interest. We did really good with our investments. And then the other one invested all of it in Bitcoin and it did not go well for him. He like buried it in the ground sort of thing. And so the master gets pretty upset with them uh, and says, I'll judge you by your own words, you wicked slave. You knew, didn't you, that I was a harsh man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you put my money into the bank or into the ground? When I returned, I should have collected with interest. I tell you, all those who have more will be given and to those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for these enemies of mine who do not want me to be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them in my presence. What? That's the this that happens right before this text. And I want you to feel what it would feel like for Jesus to tell this kind of story. And then it end in such a way that you are way back on your heels, quite uncentered. With what Jesus has just said, let the enemies of the king know there's a new order in town and bring them here and let's slaughter them. That's the mood. We don't have time to talk all about why that's the mood that happened before that. But let's get into the story today. So Jesus steps toward Jerusalem in this kind of grand processional. But we've got to answer a couple of questions before we get started. Where are we and when are we? And we're going to spend most of the time on these two questions Because everything that Jesus is doing in this triumphal entry hinges on what we understand about the context and the place. So just as a refresher, what's happening here is Jesus has uh, been sort of journeying all through Luke's gospel. If you remember the movement of the gospels, been journeying toward Jerusalem. Luke keeps saying over and over again that Jesus does such and such a thing in such and such a place and then turns his face toward Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is from the northern part of Israel, Nazareth in the Galilee region, and Jerusalem is south. You can sort of take this river down and you'll hit Jerusalem. Bethlehem's just south of Jerusalem. And then Herod's palace and Herod's kind of capital city is just south of Bethlehem. So Jesus has been moving. And it says he moves through Bethphage and Bethany, which are outliers just outside of Jerusalem. And he comes to the Mount of Olives. And he says to his disciples, like, I need you to go get some provisions And then bring them back here. And if anybody asks why you're asking for this donkey or this colt, just tell them that the Lord needs it. The Kyrios needs it. It doesn't say that the Messiah needs it or that Jesus needs it, but this language of Lord needs these things. And so then they get them, bring them back, and then Jesus moves toward the city, moves through this gate. The people have palm branches, they throw coats down on the ground, and Jesus rides in. And then the folks say, well, you heard it, you said it, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the scene. And this is what we're supposed to remember on Palm Sunday. But on the face of it, we might not fully appreciate all of the things that are happening that make this symbolic action so pregnant with meaning so let's get into it we have to ask the question where we are first and so i want you to stay with me for just a little bit some of this might be familiar to you and some of this might be brand new let's see how much we can hold in our hearts together as we move through this is a picture of the area of the mediterranean and all of that yellow is can you guess what all the yellow is yeah it's the empire Rome has been expanding for quite a while up to this point. It's not done with this expansion. It sort of reaches its height 100 years into the uh, new 
new ordering of time, and then, you know, 300s or so, it starts its, its kind of precipitous decline. But this is what it looks like close to the height of its power. And that's like most of the known world. Now you'll notice this little red dot here circled. That's Israel. Israel is small by geographic standards, and Israel has not been in charge of its own history for quite a while now. Just as a refresher about what's been happening before the Roman Empire was in charge, Israel had been in exile in Babylon. And then this king shows up named Cyrus and makes this decree that Israel can go home, that the people can go back to their homeland. And so they go home, but they're still sort of in this space of not quite settled in the land. Alexander the Great moves in, sort of the Greek conquerors and conquers this region, Hellenizes it, changes things like language and trade and the way you're educated, all those sort of things come in with Alexander the Great. And after that, Rome conquers. And so Israel has been settled, but not quite ever fully settled because power after power comes in and they're all fighting and then Israel's just kind of in the middle of this scuffle. Not to mention, look how small Israel is. Even if they wanted to be in charge of their own histories, this is who they are contending with. So Rome had this practice, whereas they would expand the empire, they would conquer. In different ways they would conquer. They might would move into a village, like they would roll into Pasadena, and they would say, we're here. And there's now a new person in charge at City Hall, and that would be us. You have a couple of choices. You can just go ahead and bow the knee, and then nobody has to die. And then you can move, kind of transfer any sort of local wealth you might have to the empire. You pledge loyalty to us and to Caesar, and then we will give you protection. Sounds like the mafia to me. But that's what it would have been like. And so this is how Israel comes to be occupied by Rome. The problem with Israel is that they are uh, obstinate in their descent to empire. They do not like being ruled by other people. They have this history, if you remember, of being slaves at one point in Egypt. And so anytime there's this conquering power, you can feel kind of at the edges of Israel's society a rebellious instinct. And so Rome has gotten really good at putting down rebellions. And Israel is is a pretty important geographical location because it connects all kinds of trade to the east. It's also a port as it enters into the Mediterranean Sea. So even though it's small, it's strategic, and people fight over it all of the time. So this is Rome, and this is Israel's place in Rome. This is if you were to like overlay the uh, empire of Rome on top of the United States just to get a sense of how big it is. That helps me a lot. That seems pretty big. And you saw how small Israel was. Now, in case this isn't clear to you, I'll, I'll make it crystal clear. This is the comparison we're making here. That's a gerbil, by the way. This is what it would have felt like to be this small, scrappy nation of Israel with other people in charge of your life. There's not a lot of room to breathe or a lot of room to move. You were reminded all of the time that even though you were in your own land, you didn't have possession of the land because Rome would move military units in over and over again. There's an entire legion of the military stationed like just north of Jerusalem. There's a couple of legions stationed in the nation of Israel in case things got out of hand. They would tax you so that they could pay for their military expansions and any kind of building projects that were happening. 
And then Rome put over that region different, smaller rulers, particularly Herod the Great and then Pontius Pilate, who we'll meet in a little bit in the story. So that's Rome. Up north in Israel, this is a kind of zoomed in of the nation of Israel. Up north is Nazareth. That is Jesus' hometown. So even then, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And Bethlehem is just south of Jerusalem, right? So way down there by that bottom red dot. But he's actually from Nazareth. So after he's born, they go back north and that's where they live. And Jesus spends the most of his time around the Sea of Galilee, which is up there in the north. By the way, the region of the Galilee is sort of the backwaters of Israel. And Nazareth is a nowhere town. I won't compare it to anything in California because that would insult somebody. But if you're from Louisiana, it would be like being from Kentwood. And only Corey laughs because she knows what Kentwood means. Kentwood's also where Britney Spears is from, in case you need some help. Okay. Nazareth is in the north, and that's Jesus' hometown. Caesarea, uh, Maritima. So that's the, the maritime port of Caesarea. That is where Pilate is from, Pontius Pilate. He'll show up in the story in a little bit. Pilate has some kind of call, charge, to make sure that the Israelites stay in line. And we'll get to that in a moment. The other space where we are is the temple. So as Jesus moves into the city... Jesus would have started at the Mount of Olives and moved into Jerusalem, taking this path down. And then at the center of Jerusalem is the temple. This is the second temple that was built. The first temple was torn down during the Babylonian exile. And then the second temple was built. And so the temple is this location of deep, like geographic, social, religious meaning. We don't have a ton of buildings, a ton of physical spaces that have this much meaning packed into them. Maybe like the Capitol in Washington and still this site, the Staples Center. Center. (laughs) Yes. Just like that. Actually, in New Orleans, the Superdome is a lot like a temple. Yeah, where nothing good ever happens. Uh, (laughs) This is the temple site. So there is this, and this is a deeply simplified version, but what I'm trying to to get at here is the meaning of the temple and its sort of sacred geography. So uh, the Temple Mount is on a a high point in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is considered like on a high point in all of Israel. So if you read the Psalms of Ascent, there's this whole section of Psalms in the Psalter that are songs you would sing on the way to the big festivals at the temple in Jerusalem. And they're always about going up physically. You would go up to this site. That language of a city on a hill that can't be hidden, that's Jerusalem because it sits higher. And on the highest place in this is the temple. And this matters because, well, the highest place is like the closest place to wherever God lives. It's like the top of mountains. And so that's where you put a temple. It might be called something like the navel of creation. This really thin space where God's activity is just more concentrated. So it sits at the center of Jerusalem at this highest point. The temple was the center of all religious life. It would have been also the center of all of like the economy and commerce that happens at the temple, social obligations, kind of intermixing of the communities at various high seasons and high festivals, that all happens at the temple. And that's where Jesus is moving toward. All right, you still with me here? We're still in the where we are. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. 
got the temple on the left. The Mount of Olives, and I've been to this space. It's uh, this high point, sort of looks down over the city. And Jesus is standing there, just underneath the Mount of Olives, as you go down the hill are all of these graves. And the graves are there because there was this legend that arose around the time of Jesus and before, that when Messiah came back, when the anointed would came to reclaim the throne of David, that he would start on the Mount of Olives, and he would gather the armies in that space. And then that would be the place where the Messiah would attack and take back the city. And when that happened, the end of days will have arrived. And at the end of days, at the end of time, all of the dead are raised. So if you were going to get buried somewhere, you would want to get buried really close to where the action is. So you could be the first one back into the new city whenever God sets up God's kingdom on earth again, on the throne of David at the temple in Jerusalem. It's a little bit like if you were going to try to like get the first iPhone that came out and you would pitch a tent right in front of the Apple store. That's this situation, except for you're, you're dead. It's just a little bit different. The metaphor stretches and breaks at some point. So Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives and he tells his disciples, it's time for the final siege. Go get some supplies and meet me back here. And then we're going to go take the city. You have to remember the disciples this entire time have been struggling with what Jesus's kingdom is about. You can feel Peter at various times say like, are we ready? I've got the sword. I've been sharpening it. We are ready to take down the oppressors. Jesus keeps saying like, that's not how this thing works. But then Jesus is standing on this ancient battle site, getting ready to take the kingdom. And he asks for provisions. Jesus is mounting some kind of military campaign on the edge of the Mount of Olives. Except he does it all wrong. Now, where are we? That's the last part we just talked about. When are we? We are at the season of Passover. If you read a little bit further in Luke's gospel, you know that we get to Jesus making preparations to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. So it's this season of um, religious significance. Now here's what the Passover meant at that time. The Passover was instituted in the early middle part of the book of Exodus. If you remember, how could you forget Exodus if you've been coming to church here for any length of time? Exodus is the story of of Israel's freedom from captivity in Egypt. And there are all of these plagues that happen. So it's like the first 10 chapters or so of the book of Exodus. All these plagues, God's actions, God's conquering of Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, and then God's release of the people. But there's this point like in chapter 12 and 13 where the people are about to leave Egypt. And so it's like pregnant with meaning. And the text has been telling this story in Exodus in such a way that it's been in fast forward. The movement's happening really, really fast. The verbs are piling on one another. And it feels as though like liberation has been sprinting forward. But around chapter 12 and 13, the narrative like screeches to a halt. And the writer begins to take his or her time with the language. It slows down into slow motion. And God gives these instructions for how to keep the Passover. So the last thing that the Israelites do before they are freed from Egypt is they celebrate a meal together. And then this meal is to serve for them year to year as the retelling of this story of how God saved them from their oppressors, of how God reached down into Egypt and delivered them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm. And so they receive the instructions for how to eat this meal together, and then they receive the instructions on how to practice it into the future. 
And any time that they sit down to celebrate the Passover, they're to retell this story about what God did for them. Are you with me? So here's what happens. Around this time, whenever Israel would gather, you would sort of come in from all around the country, all the towns, all the -the out-of-the-way places, and you would gather in Jerusalem. So it was this compressed community all celebrating, and then they would remember this central story, that God saves God's people. And they would tell it over and over again in the midst of their own current oppression. And like happens when you tell stories of freedom in a space where you are not quite free, people get ideas that maybe we should break free again. Like maybe we don't have to suffer. Because remember our great, great, great grandparents, they were rescued by God and we're telling the story and maybe God's going to do it now. Maybe we should do it now. And so often there would be these like small rebellions that would pop up during the time of Passover. It was a very, very tense geopolitical time in Jerusalem. That's Passover. And so Rome is pretty smart. And Rome knows we should probably send some more of the military into Jerusalem during the Passover. Because every once in a while these rebellions pop up. And so what happens is they call for whatever kind of show of force that they would need at the time to sort of enter into the city and quell any rebellions or any dissent and reestablish order. Part of the reason that Pilate is in the city when Jesus is put on trial is likely because it was the season of Passover and Pilate is there to control the rabble-rousers, the folks who would cause problems. The city is set up in such a way, and this, of course, is, again, an, an exaggeration of the form, but in this kind of enclosure, these walls that would fortify it. And the idea was when Rome needed to have some kind of show of force, they would send in like a military horse and a military processional, tanks and, you know, stealth bombers or whatever version of it we would have now. And the, the general or whoever was in charge of that region would ride in on this horse and then people from that town would gather, right, just like we did, and they would say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would pay fealty to the empire. It was this reminder that they weren't in charge of their own lives. And so there are these gates that sort of pierce Jerusalem. And in would come Rome through one of these gates. And you were expected to go out and meet them outside the gate and to usher the rulers in. Can you feel how humiliating this would be over and over again to have to play this out? And so you have Jesus and Jesus' followers at this high point, this military outpost getting ready to declare war and move in on the city. And Jesus calls for not, not a war horse, but I'll come up again, but this colt or this donkey. What is he doing? He's reenacting. He is parroting, making a fool of the way that power gets exercised in that region. Fine, Pilate. Fine, Caesar, you want to put on a show of force. You want to show us who's in charge, whose kingdom rules in this world. Okay, that's fine. And then Jesus comes in on this donkey. 
And this other group of people gather around him and proclaim. I'll ask you to do it one more time. What is the proclamation? Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. If you say that and Rome is nearby, what you are saying is treasonous. Rome has a way of dealing with these kinds of problems. Jesus is inviting us to reflect on how deep the conflict is between the way the world exercises power and the way that Jesus is exercising power. And it is as foolish and upside down as your pastor standing on a plaster donkey telling you this story. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's intentional. Jesus has been telling his disciples over and over again that his kingdom is not of this world. You symbolically and quite literally have a confrontation of the world's powers and God's powers. And you have it concentrated in the holiest city, moving toward the holiest space, the temple. What happens when these two counter forces meet? And now Rome is a stand-in, right? It could have been Rome, it could have been Egypt, it could have been Babylon, it could have been some version of America. It could have been whatever empire is at the time. And we need to be clear here that, that allegiance to God's kingdom is a primacy. It's a primary allegiance. And all other allegiances are subject to and submissive to that primary allegiance. So you could be a citizen of Rome. Paul, the apostle Paul, is a citizen of Rome, but was a citizen of God's kingdom first. And Rome doesn't like to share loyalty. And so there's this moment that we know is coming. And the way the gospel writers tell these stories, it is like you can feel it in your gut. I want to say this really clearly this morning because each time we get to Palm Sunday and we hold these palm fronds and we uh, have the kids come up and sing, we are inviting the same kind of treason into our midst. And even though there's not like a pilot outside or a Caesar or a battalion of Rome, it's still the same story and the same conflict of allegiances. What happens when Jesus goes up against Rome, not just Rome, but all of the powers of sin and death? Because that is what empire represents. Rome takes on this sort of metaphysical meaning becomes a place that constrains you. For the Pharisees at the time, it becomes the reason that you can't keep the law. Because living in a world dictated by other people's rules and patterns, it might take you off the path that God and the Torah has put you on. And so, living an empire is hard for your heart. And Rome wants to always make sure, power always wants to make sure you know who is in charge. And they will use anything necessary to do so. And if necessary, they will use even death. So they had this thing that they would do. Where they would, uh, Rome, if, if you were a dissenter, if you were a rebel, they would make sure, after they killed you, to make a witness of you. And they would go and they would stake out along the roads, like say that this aisle is the road on the way into Jerusalem, and they would uh, they would execute you if you were a criminal, if you were a rebel trying to start a revolution, and then they would stake you out along the roads into the city. And this would serve as anyone coming in or out of the space, doing commerce, doing trade or anything, that if you misbehave and fall out of line, 
empire will take care of you. And what did they put on the sides of the roads? Crosses. Execution stakes. That's what happens to those who challenge the way of Rome. And so you have Jesus mounting the final steps of his campaign to establish the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Even to the last moment, when Jesus is arrested, and we'll talk about this on Friday, when Jesus is sentenced to death, they challenge him, like, if you are who you say you are, then why don't you call your armies and come fight our armies? We're waiting. It's this taunt. It's like David and Goliath again. All of those crowds that were singing Hosanna with Jesus have sort of fallen back and pulled away. And all of those who've been paying loyalty to empire are saying, I told you so. And at some point, even God's own people, when asked who is in charge of their life, say, we have no other king but who? Caesar. Jesus is offering this choice so obviously between the way the world exercises power and the way that God is exercising power in the world. Who makes for peace? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Rome had a program for peace, and it was peace by the sword, peace by conflict, and peace by violence. And Jesus keeps being tempted into that space. If only you would take up arms, Jesus. If only you would call your disciples. Don't you have like legions of angels in heaven waiting to strike? What are we doing? We could win this thing. And Jesus says, not like that. To quote Audrey Lord, you can't tear down the master's house with the master's tools. And so this temptation into violence that has been with Jesus from the very beginning in the wilderness temptations with the devil and follows Jesus all the way up to the cross. And you see where this story has been leading. This version of the story makes me feel deeply uncomfortable. Because it exposes the central claims of our grand story to the potential foolishness that they are. Like the entirety of the New Testament after the Gospels is reckoning with this central claim that in Jesus' death and resurrection, we see the power of God active in the world. Here's the thing, though. We might, on this side of the story, think that it just makes total sense, of course. Like that's the way that God saves the world. But this symbol is a symbol of defeat. It is a symbol of loss. Everything about Jesus' way in the world is turned upside down. So this week, I was, uh, I'm going to sit on the donkey and tell you a story. This week, I uh, was thinking about this, sort of for the last couple of weeks, and I've thought, like, what is my own complicity 
my own participation in the ways of empire. That feels actually a little far from me. I buy into this conflict that's happening, but sometimes it's hard to understand how we are implicated in this cosmic conflict. Partly because one of the tools of empire is its own disguise. Its ability to hide its true intentions in the midst of just the comings and goings of the world. Multiple times a day, a week, a month, a year, we are tempted to believe the way of the world over against the way of God. Actually, I would say most of my life is spent trying to adjudicate between these two sort of sources of allegiance. But like very simply, just kind of bring it all the way down to the ground, uh, This week, I was just in this midst of like trying to be right about some kind of argument in my life. And I thought, uh, you know, I look over here at my family because they know me best. And I thought to myself, sitting back, having already said sorry for being a jerk, uh, why don't I feel resolved? Why do I still feel like justice hasn't been done? And I thought, I thought, I keep losing these arguments. Then I thought, about playing video games with my kid. And we play this uh, fighting game, Super Smash Brothers, and I thought, it's like I keep getting punched and punched and counterpunched, and I can't recover enough to beat, to beat the person in the argument. I can't win. All of a sudden, in this relational environment, I invite the logic of violence and the logic of like defeat and winners and losers to just this very intimate part of my own life. That is me. Believing in the way of empire over the way of Christ in like a very small but really, really personal way. Somebody's got to win and somebody's got to lose. This is not the way of Christ. And I will be the first to admit that Christ's way is the harder way. Even when Jesus is being put to death. When anybody would have understood and no one would have faulted him for saying, I don't care for these folks very much, the ones that are killing me. His language is what? Father, forgive them because they don't even know what they're doing. That's what it means to live in the midst of empire. We don't even know what we're doing. It's just as natural as breathing. And the cross is this moment when Jesus exposes the powers for who they really are. The seduction of Rome is that they rule the world and they bring control and order. Even if that's by the sword and by bloodshed, at least things are where they belong. And it is seductive to fall into that and think, fine, my life is out of control. Here, you take it. You have control over it. What Jesus does is step into that story and expose it for the oppression that it is, for the death pattern that it is, for the way that it stands over against the way of God time and time again. And when Jesus rides into the city on a donkey, lampooning the powers. One writer says, it's like Jesus is melting the solidity of the world. And this is what we're invited to see on Palm Sunday. This is the choice that is set before us each time we tell this Easter story. Who is in charge of creation? Who is in charge of this world? 
Who is going to bring about peace and reconciliation? And at the moment of Christ's death, he says, see me exalted. His throne is a cross. His crown are thorns. His designation is tacked at the top of his execution stake, the king of the Jews. And we see with clarity for the first time that this world is empty promises. And the seduction is going to take us to the grave. So the choice is before us again today. And it will be before us all through this week if we trust the way of Jesus. This way of surrender, of weakness, of suffering for others for the sake of the world. Now there are times where I am tempted to plant myself on this side of the story. There are times when I'm tempted to believe, because of all of the evidence around me and around you, that the world keeps winning and that the way of God keeps losing. I can't and don't want to skip all the way ahead to Easter, but if the cross is Christ exposing the powers for the death that they are, then the empty tomb is Christ vanquishing even death. So that everything has already been accomplished. It it sort of makes the choice a little bit more clear. But we do have to choose. You don't accidentally fall into the most foolish version of the story. You have to believe it. And you have to commit to it. And you have to be ready for the ridicule that would come in trusting the way of Christ. Which is the way of the cross. Which is the way of defeat. And see in that space the power of God at work. What does Jesus say over and over again each time he tells the story of the kingdom of God? Let those with ears hear and let those with eyes see. Church family. This conflict is still happening all the time. And this collision will force us to make a choice. To flee from the presence of God, or to hold fast. The invitation into the way of Christ is the invitation to walk the path of Christ in the way that Christ walks it, which means to take up a cross and follow, which means we have to set down the swords and we have to set down the need to win, to take up violence, even if we think it's for good ends, for the sake of the world, because this is who God loves. So now is the time of choosing. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. I've decided to follow Jesus. And uh, maybe we could sing like, I hope that I can decide to follow Jesus. Uh, the, the tagline is no turning back. And when you sing these words, may you trust them. And trust that the way of the cross is actually the way of salvation in the way that God has chosen to bring peace into this world.
and you ground your life in this story. May you embrace the foolish way. And as Paul says, see there the power of God at work in the world. Will you pray with me? God, what are you up to right now? In what ways are you inviting us, inviting me and my friends in this space to trust you? God, what ways have we taken up the tools of this world, even if to accomplish what we think are your ends? So forgive us, because we don't know what we're doing half the time. Forgive us, because sometimes we do know what we're doing, and it's just too hard. Bring us close to you. Give us courage to stay near you, even when we see where your story is taking us. Make us fit to bear the burden of being your follower. And give us hope in all that you have accomplished both in the dying and in the raising. God, we believe, help our unbelief. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.